0: Father, we have seen testimony of your Word's relevance and power and authority, even against the backdrop of all the confusion, the difficulty, the turmoil, the systemic sin, and the overshadowing evil, Lord, that seems to creep across our culture and our nation at such a time. We take refuge and confidence in the testimony of scripture that even though darkness can come for a season and that the shadow of your looming judgment may be upon us nevertheless the rock Jesus Christ as is as secure today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow and forever we confess lord that your light the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ proclaimed throughout your scripture shines all the brighter even in days as dark as ours we also confess That the word of God proves sufficient, eternal, immortal, immovable, steadfast, and always abounding, Lord Jesus, with every means of grace necessary to equip your church to take ground for the kingdom of God, even in days where the enemy would have us be discouraged. We thank you, Lord, now as we turn to your scriptures written thousands of years ago through the pen of the inspired uh, saints who have gone before, we find even here grace for our day today. We thank you that the message of hope rings true and eternal in the ears of those who love it so. We pray that you would give us a deeper desire for your holy scriptures as you nurture within us godly affections for the things that will cause us to spring forth in newness of life. Even as Peter speaks to the pure spiritual milk, as we hear your milk proclaimed this day, we pray that it would be proclaimed in spirit and in truth, it would be rightly divided for our ears, and that it would bring nourishment to our spiritual being, growing us up in every way into Christ, into the maturity of Christ himself. We pray that you would... Erase spots and blemishes in your church that you would equip and encourage and embolden a message of hope in Christ alone in our day and age. All for the glory and the advancement of your name and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. It has been my prayer and my experience that the fellowship of the beloved is only sweeter in a day where the cost of meeting is slightly higher, and, that there, and there seems to be at times circumstances or opinions standing in our way. Certainly the saints who have gone before, and even some of our brothers and sisters overseas, have fellowshiped under much, much more difficult terms. And so we are encouraged that God gives us a reason to meet, even when it's at the risk of our lives, reason to stand firm in our faith, even if it requires sometimes a higher cost, knowing that Christ Himself, who died on Calvary, commands us, and therefore it is our privilege to take up our cross and to follow Him. So in that light, I pray that the Word of God is your treasure all the more today as we open its pages. Turn there with me, if you would, in Genesis 16 this morning, as we turn a page and open another chapter in our study in the life of Abraham the great patriarch, Abram at this time, his wife Sarai at this time, in our Genesis series. The title of this morning's message is Saving the Outcast. Outcast would refer to Hagar and the incredible events that transpire in this passage. Uh, Hagar is the outcast that experiences a revelation, an appearance of the Lord, and indeed, I suggest and submit to you the salvation of her soul as she places her hope in the Messiah to come and returns to the covering of the covenant promises, Saving the Outcast. The aim of this morning's message is to highlight the glories of salvation in spite of the corruption of sin. Here is another chapter where the corruption of sin is evident even in the life of the forefather in the faith, Abram, and his wife. Nevertheless, this only serves to highlight all the brighter the glories of salvation, wherein God can save in spite of our sinfulness. This morning, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand once again for the reading of the same In your ears today, behold the infallible and errant word of the Lord coming to us in Genesis 16, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Here is the holy word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, that, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram for her husband as a wife. Her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, verse 7, by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said... Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, quote, you are a God of seeing, quote. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Birlaki Roy, I know I got that wrong. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Be mindful of the context in Genesis 15 that precedes our chapter today. In Genesis 15, the Lord had revealed Himself himself in manifest form, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch to ratify by this self-harm oath, if you will, the covenant made to Abraham as he passed in this theophonic, that means God manifests in a tangible way, through the split pieces of the sacrificial animals, every category of the sacrificial animals worthy of sacrifice listed, and so on. It is one of the most significant moments in all of world history, may I suggest. But then 16 follows with an unlikely chapter given the high point of this glorious revelation in 15. In chapter 16, in the life of Abraham and company, is a surprising twist given the account of divine covenant ratification featured immediately prior in chapter 15. It raises this question, how could such supernatural events, including the swearing of covenant oath by Yahweh himself in person, be so quickly lost on his servants? The answer should remind us all of our own spiritual frailty. Recently, I preached a message from Psalm 103 and entitled it, Waging War or War on Forgetfulness. In this chapter, David wages war on forgetfulness, if you will. He no doubt remembers, yes, his own personal tendency and frailty toward forgetting the things that God has done, but he also is likely... Keeping in mind the fitful record of faithfulness so often exhibited by those with the fewest excuses, even our forefathers in the faith, Abraham, Sarai, and so forth. Against this backdrop, however, grace shines all the brighter. Grace shines all the brighter. Not only does God display his long-suffering to Abram and Sarai in spite of their failings, he reaches even further, extending his tender mercies, His grace unto an Egyptian maidservant, a woman who is pregnant with Abram's son, by means of a foolhardy conspiracy. This chapter demonstrates the real consequences of covenant unfaithfulness. We see this in the first portion, and we see it play out in the course of the first portion of our chapter, but we also see it play out in the course of Abram's life. Lack of faith and covenant relationship with the Lord evident in, say, fear, doubt, and disobedience. Abraham can testify to the fact that this will affect other covenant relationships as well. In this case, perhaps most directly, the marriage union. Here's a lesson for us today. All covenant fidelity, all covenant faithfulness stems from one's commitment to the Lord first and foremost. Here's a phrase you could remember. When there's disorder in the heart, it breeds disorder in the home. When there is disorder in the heart, it breeds disorder in the home. Often, in the case here, with disa- we see with disastrous results. Nevertheless, God who swore to His own hurt in chapter 15 to fulfill His covenant promises will demonstrate His saving grace, proving the power of the cross to come when the ultimate significant Son, Jesus Christ, would die for those in the line of the Messiah, like Abram and Sarai, and those who are Gentile outcasts as well, like Hagar. So this is an overview of the message of Genesis 16. Let us look more closely at these truths under this heading. Hagar's story serves to illustrate the following. So what is proclaimed, what truths of the Lord, what characteristics and attributes, what glory of Him is evident In the story of Hagar, well, the following at least could be said, I submit to you today. Hagar's story serves to illustrate, number one, covenant counterfeit. Hagar is pregnant by Abram's uh, seed in a sort of counterfeit covenant, a way and means that man has come up with. Sarai's best intentions have fallen into this foolish reason to try to make up for what she perceives lacking in the promises of God. Hagar's story serves to illustrate covenant counterfeit. Secondly, Hagar's story serves to illustrate covenant according to the flesh. What defines a counterfeit covenant? Well, if the covenant is not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh, according to the means of man, that is to say, then it falls outside the boundaries of that which God has sanctioned and leads to consequences. Thirdly, we see illustrated in Hagar's story the hopeful message of the reach of redemption. How great and manifest, how far-reaching the long-sufferings, the tender mercies, the grace of our Lord, as we've mentioned, reaching even to the heart of an Egyptian outcast woman servant, Hagar. Number one, counterfeit covenant. Hagar's story serves to illustrate this. In verses one through three, we have this record now Sarai, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Right from the first verse, you can see the setup. You're going to almost read between the lines that something's going to happen to accommodate this great problem, but it's going to happen by ulterior means. Who is this Hagar anyway? She's all of a sudden introduced as a character in her story. She becomes important because of this counterfeit covenant attempt. And Sarai, verse 2, said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. First of all, Egypt is significant. Covenant counter, or Counterfeit covenants in Scripture are often associated with Egypt. Egypt is a typological reference, if you will, to the city of man. Kids, just a reminder for you. Do you remember we talked about the legacies of the sons of Noah? Let's see if you can remember him. It's Japheth and the uh, coastlands, right? Yep. Shem and the significant sons. And then last one, Ham and the city builders. So Ham represents a legacy of hope placed in city building or cities. Egypt is a quintessential example of the city of man. It represents the pooling of man's efforts together to accomplish something on his own merits, and by his own means. Thus, Egypt becomes symbolically important. Another thing we can learn in our text, however, is this idea of covenant is inescapable. That is to say, God has made us certain kinds of creatures. And the relationship that God has sown into the fabric of our social reality and our spiritual reality cannot exist, does not exist outside the bounds of covenant. We've talked about the very basic definition of a covenant. Hey, uh, one of you kids want to shout out what a covenant is. What is a covenant? It's a com- it's a promise between one or more or two or more parties, right? So it's basically a relationship. It's a promise or vows are exchanged between uh, two or more parties. Covenants invariably have a hierarchical structure. That means there's a greater party and a lesser party at least. And this is the way that God has ordered things. In the very beginning, He, the greater party, Issues a covenant, that is terms of relationship between him and Adam. And of course we know in Genesis 3 that those terms were broken. Nevertheless, this covenantal structure remains. It's just that Adam is under condemnation now because he is in breach of those covenant terms. So all of history then is moving forward toward this time, this promise, and fulfilling along the way these redemptive historical plans and purposes of God to restore that covenant. And one of those purposes was that God would give Abram, by his supernatural uh, power, seed from his own body, and this would be between Abram and Sarai, no one else. That was the covenant parameters. Now, when we have struggle with lack of faith, when we don't believe that God's promises or we grow weary waiting for his, the answers to what we cry out for in prayer, we may be tempted like Sarai was to adopt or to... Uh, engineer a counterfeit covenant. There are counterfeit, counterfeit covenants all around us. Even some of the revolutionary and reactionary and outrage movements in the streets today are a, are a kind of counterfeit covenant. You perhaps have seen in the news lately that the death of one man or several who are perceived to be victims of a, uh, abuse at the hands of police We hope that by the shedding of that blood, that real change can come. Well, those are covenantal terms. The shedding of atoning blood in order to restore something that was lost. You can't get away from these ideas. However, if the shedding of the blood for which we place hope for restoration of covenant is anything other than Jesus' blood alone, it is indeed a counterfeit covenant. And this is the lesson of Genesis 16. If the birth of the son was by any other couple outside of Abraham and Sarai, it indeed is a counterfeit covenant. So instead of looking to the promises of God, as it were, the people of God at this time, namely Abraham and Sarai, looked to Egypt. And where did this servant come from? Well, if we turn back to Genesis chapter 12, perhaps we have an answer. In Genesis 12, Abram had looked to Egypt at another time. You remember? Verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And you remember the story. He was intimidated and fearful because his wife was beautiful, and he thought that he would lose her if he didn't lie about her identity. He passed her off as his sister, and consequently, she was taken to be the wife and waiting here in Pharaoh's house. When he finds out, boy, is he mad, God tells him he better let this woman go, he does, for her sake he dwelt well with Abram, verse 16, and he had sheep, as Abram, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. So all these spoils, as it were, were given to Abram as sort of a, a penance by Pharaoh, so not to reap the judgment of God, having taken illegitimately uh, Sarai to be his wife. And so female servants and the rest of these livestock and so forth are given to Abram as gifts perhaps that's when Hagar entered into the keeping and care of Abram and Sarai's household you see she if this is true she uh, testified to a moment when Egypt when Abram looked to Egypt and was fearful as well the most powerful thing that Abram had at his disposal was the promises of God they could not be broken they would not be broken and they were established forever in the heavenlies, as it were. They will be eternally true. And in verse chapter 15, God had sworn that he would be, may he be like, as it were, the animals that were split in two if he were not to fulfill his promises. Can you think of anything more certain than that? That God would promise you something he would swear to his own hurt to accomplish. Nevertheless, in their fear and in their impatience, in their insecurity, in any number of doubt and, and lack of faith, or various things that plague our frail human condition, Abram and Sarai looked to Egypt uh, to, for answers as they are getting old. Jacob and his sons would flee to Egypt in a time of famine, and you remember what happened eventually. They became slaves for 400-some years. The wilderness wanderers longed for Egypt as they were traveling after the exodus because, again, the city of man held out a hope for them that was tangible, and this was to be contrasted with the word and promises of God, which came to them by special revelation, even the law. And there would come a day in the future where God's, the fulfillment of God's promises would happen when Jesus Christ as a toddler was called up out of Egypt, and Matthew 2, verse 5, where the gospel writer records, out of Egypt I have called my son." In other words, out of counterfeit covenant, out of hope in the city of man, out of this tendency to place faith in other means, God would, bring, would ransom a people who would reject the promises of Egypt and hold to the promises of God. And this is a message, how do you distinguish a true covenant from a counterfeit one? Does the covenant rely on the promises of Egypt, the promises of man, the promises of government? The promises of society, the promises of our body politic and collective, the promises of worldly and vain philosophy, the promises of anything else outside of the Word of God, that is a counterfeit covenant. Do not uh, bet on it, it will prove to be an utter failure. Now this counterfeit covenant had other patterns, uh, sinful patterns as well, in this arrangement With uh, procuring Hagar to bear Abram's son, Sarai and Abram and the like are echoing ideas, concepts from Eden, the Garden of Eden, and Babel. Notice in verse 2, Sarai says the following, "'Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her.'" In the original language, my study yielded me an interesting fact. Those words there, six or so, I shall obtain children by her, is a translation of a single term in Hebrew, bana, which means to build. It's, and the idea is expanded and applies, or, and it's qualified in its context. And by the way, it's the same term that is used in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel incident. In other words, just like the people said, come. Let us make for ourselves a name, bake bricks, and let us build this tower. That idea of building a tower is the same concept in the Hebrew language. It's echoed here. I shall build a tower to secure a name for myself, the people said. Uh, In a similar sense, Sarai says, I shall build, by this means, by my maidservant, a lineage. I shall obtain children. I shall build a family by her. Do you see the echo? It's a counterfeit covenant because it's relying on other means, the means of man. Later we'll see in Galatians 4, this was a covenant, if you will, according to the flesh. That is, by man's means and man's ability and man's ingenuity. And that's, in this sense, it echoes Babel and the foolish endeavor to secure a name and a future and a lineage and security by means of man's best ideas. There are also echoes of Eden. Notice two familiar words that we will see in Genesis 3. You can turn to Genesis 3 in a moment. Genesis 16.3 says, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Two key words there to note, took and gave. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This echoes the sinful actions all the way back at the fall. Perhaps, this, perhaps you uh, remember the incident in Genesis 3, but notice closely the language. Verse 6, So when the woman, that would be Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, what did she do? The verse continues, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you can see the parable, uh, parallels, can you not? You have a somewhat passive husband, if you will, or indeed passive husband, if you will, who is not paying attention to his covenant responsibilities with his family. He's placating, he's complicit with, he's tagging along with his wife who is in this time of despair and worried and lack of faith about the promises of God. So here Eve was deceived by the look and the promise of the fruit by Satan's word, which was in direct contradiction to God's word. So upon considering the situation, she bought the enemy's idea, and she decided to travel the route or to pursue the end of a counterfeit covenant. So she saw, she took, and she gave. In a similar way, Sarai was in a faith crisis, if you will. She was weighing what God's promises were. Now she's up in her 80s, likely, late 80s, most likely around that time, mid-late 80s. And she doesn't see any practical possible way for the promise to come by virtue of her womb. So what does she do? She sees her maidservant, Hagar, she takes and she gives to Abram. And Abram, much like Adam, was complicit in this whole sinful counterfeit covenant, accepts the idea, takes Hagar as his wife, and proceeds accordingly. She gave some to her husband, in Eve's case, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And this eye-opening experience of consequences that are sure and soon to follow, counterfeit covenant, is also in the record of Genesis 16. Very shortly, turmoil is sown into the house of Abram, On account of this, all kinds of drama erupts and a crisis is at his doorstep. Remember that phrase that we said before. When there is disorder in the heart, it breeds disorder in the home. And so the take and give proposition, similar to that which took place in Eden, produced similar results. And just like Babel, the plans were foiled and they were confused by the Lord and the people were dispersed. Their end for which they had labored proved to be futile and foolish as God visited them and brought judgment upon them. In this situation, God visits as well, and shortly Hagar is dispersed. She will return, however, and that speaks to redemption. We'll cover that later. Finally, under covenant counterfeit, we find that these actions are according to the voice of fallen reason. So if you want to just pick a phrase to contrast... The competing ideals that we face, that we need to resist in our day and age, think of fallen reason, the voice of fallen reason, man's best ideas, not remembering that he is a sinful creature. This is so important today. We live in an era where people think by, just by virtue of man's thinking and reasoning capacity, he can come up with ideas to better his condition, to solve his problem, problems, and to secure a hopeful future. This is foolish. Notice how fallen reason got Abram and Sarai into trouble. Notice how the devil seemed to make a, lot of, a s- lot of sense in the Garden of Eden. But that voice of fallen reason proved to be the end, if you will, or proved to bring judgment upon these parties. At this, uh, this arrangement to secure progeny, that is, children, by alternative means was a documented practice at the time. Hammurabi's code, he was an important Babylonian ruler, as I recall, and he encoded a lot. There's written documentation of the social order of Babylon or related areas, and it goes way back, actually, before Babylon. In the Hammurabi's code, there was an allowance for children to be raised up via a maidservant. Therefore, we see, even in the testimony of archaeology and history, that this notion would have been common during that day. It was a solution offered by the pagan culture, the worldly culture around them, and it seemed reasonable. And notice this principle that we can apply today. Every day you will be plagued and bombarded by what sounds like reasonable solutions of a pagan culture around you. Will you hold them closely accountable to the Word of God and make sure and practice discernment so you do not fall prey to a counterfeit covenant. We mentioned before all the problems that are in our world today, everything from pandemic to riots erupting in our streets, and everybody's out there exalting certain ways and means by which we can navigate these uncertain waters. Well, you're a fool, by at this point, if you trust the World Health Organization or the CDC, are you not, when it comes to viruses? What they give in one hand last week, they'll take away with the next hand this week. What they give conclusively by way of scientific study and proclamation three weeks ago is turned on its head in two weeks. And if you don't like what they say tomorrow, just wait another week and it'll be different. How in the world are you supposed to have certainty and make any decisions following the voice of fallen reason? That's just an illustration of how uncertain and absolutely fickle and wholly compromised and corrupt any message of man is. Do not elevate to even compete with or compare to the word of God, the ideas of a pagan and fallen culture. They will fail you every time. They may sound reasonable, but that's because your ears have not been trained to hear the clear clarion call of God's word dividing bone from marrow and discerning what the real foundation of their promises are. Another example, if you think socialism is the cure to our ills, you will prove yourself a huge fool as well. The bodies are stacked into the millions and tens of millions to demonstrate that God's judgment falls on those who believe a pagan philosophy, ideology, and social order as hope for a future utopian heaven on earth. No, none of the ideas of man will yield any fruit in the end. Instead, they lead to judgment, dispersion, confusion, and calamity falling upon one's head. Let us learn that the voice of fallen reason is woefully insufficient. It's colored and corrupt by sin. When our closest influences, here's our, a message for us to apply today. When our closest influences conflict with God's word, our faith is tested intensely. Whose word, whose promise will supersede the word of God in our lives? Or do we hold as superseding the word of God in our lives? Obviously, none of them should. But I just gave you a few examples kind of in the main or larger general cultural sense. But here is a very close example. In other words, it's a lot harder sometimes to resist the temptation if the fallen reason is coming from someone who is very close to us. In this case, Sarai convinces Abram of her scheme. With our, when our closest influences conflict with the Word of God, it is a test of faith. But remember... No one's word and no one's promises should supersede the word of God in our lives. Listen to God's word. Here we see a lesson of counterfeit covenant in this point number one. Hagar's story serves to illustrate some of these markers, some of these patterns, and they are biblical patterns that we see throughout the text, not just in our story here, to help us to discern counterfeit covenants and to uphold the only truth, which is God's Holy Word and to lean on it, to have confidence in it, and to use it to order our affairs, to organize our lives, and to build, yes, even a society. Major point number two, Hagar's story serves to illustrate not only counterfeit covenant, but also uh, a related idea, covenant according to the flesh. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, Paul reveals to us one of God's sovereign purposes in this story and it's allegorical or typological in a sense. In other words, this story is, uh, illustrates for us a distinction between two types of covenant. The one Paul labels that as, which is according to the flesh, and of course the other would be according to the Spirit. Verse 21, Galatians 4, "'Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abram, Abraham had two sons, one of a slave woman and one of a free woman.' Uh, Kids, a little trivia for you. Who was Abram's son, according to the slave woman? Who was Abraham's son that was born to Hagar, the slave woman? Anyone know? Starts with an I, well, they both do. Ishmael, that is correct. So, Abram had two sons, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. The free woman is Sarai. Who was the son born to Sarai, kids? Who was Abram's son Isaac, very good, thank you. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with his children, with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So we see here, illustrated in Hagar's story is covenant according to the flesh. And all three characters, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, play a part in this covenant according to the flesh, if you will. A covenant arrangement according to the means of man. First of all, Sarai's scheme. Now remember, it was shameful then, culturally speaking, to be childless, you were thought of as less uh, significant and valuable, even if Abram himself did not think so. Culturally speaking, women of dignity and women of prominence and significance had children, and and uh, uh, most and and, and uh, better yet, many children. So in Sarai's despair and in her shame, she had no children. Yet she had this promise, so that moved her to seek a covenant according to the flesh, because she perceived that the covenant according to promise, was not working. The shame and burden of barrenness was a setup actually to feature the glory and the power, the providence, and the supernatural uh, working of the Lord. Think of other barren women through redemptive history. Uh, In a sense, even Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, was barren in that she was a virgin. She had no children at that time. But conception came for Mary by supernatural means. What Sarai was afraid of in the flesh was the despair, and she was laboring under the shame of being childless, when in reality, her position actually placed her strategically to show forth the glory of God. And she would be honored above many women because she would be sovereignly chosen, and supernaturally she would conceive a son of promise. Nevertheless, in Sarai's scheme, she sought to address this shame. This burden of barrenness was overwhelming to her. She saw her servant as a means to her happiness, not weighing the consequences and not trusting the promises of God. When instead, and as this whole situation plays out, what she hoped would be the fruit actually proved to be totally the opposite. Instead of her being encouraged and happy and fulfilled, bearing children by her maidservant, as it were. Instead, her servant proves a source of contempt. And so now, Sarai's hopes are dashed even further. Where she was discouraged and shameful and despairing before, now she is, over, she is uh, boiling over with anger because uh, Hagar, in her contemptuous attitude toward her mistress, is adding insult to injury, if you will. And this helps us, it doesn't justify, but it helps us understand her attitude and this antithesis, this antinomy, this friction and animosity between the two women. So that's Sarai's scheme. The part that she played in this covenant according to the flesh. What was the part that Abram played? Well, he was culpable as well. We can understand perhaps better his uh, willingness to enter into this counterfeit covenant when we go back to 15.1 and realize what he struggled with. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, at this time, Abram says the best I can hope for as an heir is that my head servant, Eleazar, his son, will eventually take over my wealth and property and so on. And then Abram, no doubt struggling with this again, sees a step up from Eleazar in taking Hagar, his wife's maidservant, as his wife and bearing a son by her. So what was Abram struggling with? Well, there was a certain fear that the Lord identifies and gives him his word to assuage. Abraham was afraid of something. And this is strange perhaps to us because in chapter 14, Abram has just defeated the enemies of the north. He's rescued probably with a vastly inferior band of several hundred, 300 or so men. He's rescued Lot, his family, and the kings of the surrounding region from their northern oppressors and so forth. And after this great victory, he meets for this feast of celebration and fellowship in the valley with Melchizedek and so forth. You would think that Abram would be at a high point here. Nevertheless, he still struggles with this fear. What is Abram afraid of? Well, think about the lineage of those before Abram. Remember reading this in those different passages, the early pages of Genesis? Lamech lived X amount of years and he died. Adam lived X amount of years and he died. Shem lived X amount of years and he died. The biggest enemy of all, In the New Testament, Paul identifies the last enemy, in fact, is death itself. The older Abraham gets, it's not just that age he's afraid of, but with age comes the reality, the inevitable end of death. And indeed, Sarah's womb, biologically speaking, was dead at this time. Hebrews says that a resurrection had to take place, in fact, it implies as much for Isaac to be conceived in her womb. And Hebrews also tells us that God, through His mercy, through His redemption plan, delivers us from the fear of death. Abraham needed his attention pointed to the promises of God so that he might be able to defeat in his own soul the last enemy, as it were, and no longer fear death. Abraham didn't fear the kings of the north, but he did struggle with the fear of death at 86-some years old now. We find at the end of this passage that he would die before The promise of his lineage, which would bear the promise of the Messiah through the seed and so forth, would come. And so this was the war deep within the soul in Abraham's Abraham's case. And we, of course, know that Jesus Christ has won this war, and he has done so through the message of redemption and resurrection, even in Abraham's case. But prior to that miracle happening, one can understand the temptation to fear death, standing in the way of the promises of God. Only Jesus can defeat the last enemy, but He was promised through Abram's line. What should Abram have done? There's a question. What would have been a better course of action than, okay, your wife uh, takes her maidservant and gives it to you, and then you receive it. What would have been a better course of action? Well, may I suggest building an altar after Genesis chapter 15. Abram has just seen the Lord as it were in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, certifying, ratifying his covenant arrangement with him by theophonic, that is, God in tangible form, appearance. How about build an altar right there at that place? And how about when your wife is struggling with this despair and discouragement? In her old age, having not conceived a son, how about you take Sarai, you take the rest of your servants, and you go and you visit that altar... And you communicate to your family the ratification ceremony where God swore to his own hurt to fulfill his promises. This is what a godly man and a godly leader ought to do. In times, men of God, there will come challenges. You might be experiencing them individually. I mean, corporately, we feel pressures right now. And there will be times of testing of your faith and the faith of your family. What will you do in those moments? Will you lead your family back By opening up the scriptures and building an altar in your schedule, as it were, a good example would be family worship and point your family to the promises so that we are not as susceptible and led away and tempted by and deceived by counterfeit covenants, ideas of man, promises of culture. Take your families back, men, to the promises of God. Revisit the altar of God's revelation where he spoke unequivocally where he spoke infallibly, and it is recorded for us here. How many more altar locations, so to speak, can we visit having the full canon at our fingertips? And so let us pay heed to this counsel. Finally, Hagar was complicit as well. Covenant according to the flesh, Sarai's scheme, Abram's culpability, Hagar's contempt. No doubt, Hagar resented her secondary status, and once she became pregnant by Abram, She rubbed it in, as it were. She disrespected her mistress now that the tables had turned. Uh, He went into Hagar in verse 4. She conceived, and when she saw that as Hagar saw that she had conceived, she that is Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. And so you see the antinomy and the lines drawn and the strife sown within the household of Abram at this time. We find in the course of our text here that repentance for Hagar will mean Actually, the returning and submitting to her maidservant. When Abraham ran, or I'm sorry, when Hagar left, and she became this outcast and she fled, that was a horrible choice. It was a, uh, a truly catastrophic choice of action. Why? Because she was running from, not just the covering of her physical family and the protection and provision of Abram but also the covenant covering of Abram. We've asked in times past, what would have been the safest place to live in this time? Well, Lot was deceived. He thought the safest place to set up camp were the green fields in the cities of the plains. And we'll find out in the course of our text what the consequences of that decision were. No, the safest place to reside in all of Canaan was with a sojourner who lived in a tent his whole life because he was heir to the promises of God. Under the covering of Abram, the patriarch, as a type, as a covenant representative in him, as it were, in his family, was hope for redemption eternal. So anyone whose eyes were open would go and visit Abram's tent and ask him about the visitations he had, about that ratification ceremony. And Abram, through this testimony, might be a light to the nations. Yes. And even in this instance, through this unfortunate set of circumstances, Even a light to an Egyptian woman, giving her finally message and testimony of hope in Christ, which would come through his seed. And in the meantime, God Himself visits her. That's point number two. Hagar's story serves to illustrate covenant counterfeit, covenant according to the flesh. Final point this morning. Hagar's story serves to illustrate the reach of redemption. How deep are the mercies of God, how vast his long suffering. How magnificent, how amazing, as we sing, are His graces. Well, we find this illustrated in verse 6 and following. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So here's Hagar running into the wilderness of Shur, toward Shur. The angel of the Lord found her. That is found, Hagar, verse 7, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing my mistress, Sarai. Let us note here a coming of the Lord or a visitation. What was the first reaction, the initial reaction in the Garden of Eden when the Lord interrupted after the fall of Adam and Eve and said, Adam, where are you? What was their reaction, kids? What did Adam and Eve do when God asked where they were in Eden? Do You guys remember? After that, the Lord came and visited them in the garden after they ate the fruit. And what did they do? Did they run toward God or did they run away from God? They ran away. That's right. They ran away and they hid themselves because the sound and the presence And the power of God, they knew in deep within their consciousness, deep within their soul, that they were in deep trouble. Now, this is interesting when we contrast with Hagar. In Hagar's case, she did not run away from the voice of the Lord, but she actually answered truthfully and begins to interact with the angel of the Lord. This is staggering. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, biblical scholars are a little uh, divided on the issue exactly who the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is at least a supernatural messenger from God. That's what the term angel means. But there are times in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord actually receives worship. So we can assume that is more than just a mere messenger in these cases. As we see in the book of Revelation, that when John tries to worship an angel, he said, no, 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 do not do that. It's idolatry. The angel of the Lord and his visitations at certain times in the Old Testament is most assuredly a revelation of God himself in manifest form. Some would suggest a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ actually appearing in some form to his people. This is amazing, incredible. A personal visitation, by an angel of the Lord? How could this happen? Well, it illustrates the reach of redemption. This is a divine visitation. The Lord of glory would condescend, that is, stoop low, to reveal Himself to a lowly, reviled, Gentile, outcast, Egyptian, slave woman. Incredible. As far as man's accounting was concerned, this woman was rejected as the lowest of the low. But as far as the plan of God's redemptive purposes are concerned, he stooped down to reveal himself to her by divine visitation. Saints, this is the first mention in the Word of God, so far as I can tell, of the angel of the Lord. That is to say, the angel of the Lord is introduced in personal revelation and contact with this woman at this time. Oh, the mercy of our God. Oh, the reach of His redemption. Oh, the tender mercies and long suffering of our God to save even Hagar, a rejected, reviled, outcast, Egyptian, slave, woman, servant, and so forth. Now, you, at the, under the preaching of God's law, when it hits our heart, we rightly feel low. We are aware of our sinfulness and that we deserve God's presence no more than a worm, no more than excrement. And for God to be holy, He rightly must cast us and all our sinfulness out of His sight. You know, Hagar, you could say, was unjustly cast out of the covenant. But you and I, saints, are lower than Hagar. We were justly cast out of the covenant, born in Adam and exhibiting the effects of that blood poisoning in our own sin. Yet, similar to Hagar, if you are a believer in this room, God has condescended, stooped low through the proclamation of his word by his spirit touching your heart and ransoming you. He has stooped low to reveal himself to you. God is all about saving the outcast, the Gentile, the lowly, and the weak, and the, and the wicked, and the depraved, and the corrupt, and he does so by his miraculous revelation. This is a foreshadow, if you're a believer in this room, saint, this is a foreshadow of your own experience. If you are a believer, you better believe you can relate to Hagar and then some. This divine visitation occurs, the angel of the Lord appears to her, the Lord of glory, condescended to reveal himself to this woman. And boy, does this refute the pro-slavery oppression narrative of Bible haters. There is nothing uh, almost that annoys me and bothers me more. It gets my hackles up about short-sighted criticism of the Word of God. I hate it. It is motivated by a rebellion. But the Bible, when you read it on its own terms, when your eyes are open to see past Your preconceived ideas of what is actually there, you find the most powerful, glorious, redemptive, purposeful, hopeful, loving, incredible work in all of history, and in it is a treasure and the hope for life eternal, even for a corrupt sinner and the outcast and the lowly and the slave and so forth. The world hates the message of the scriptures today because they don't understand their sin and they don't understand the scriptures. But when they do, when the scriptures are proclaimed and they realize their sin, they know that they are an outcast lower than Hagar. You better believe that they cling to the answer of Christ alone to save them. And you better believe they love the idea of being subject to him, submitting to him. Hagar returns to submit to the covenant family. Oh, I guess the Bible endorses slavery. No, the Bible is showing by typology that submission to the covenant is the hope of eternal life. And if you don't believe it, there is no salvation. You are an outcast, lowly, deserving, a slave. And now Christ intervenes. He stoops low. He condescends. He becomes a man. He dies for you. And you submit to him. You say, thank you, Lord. If only let me be a servant in your house. Let me submit to you. And as you do so, you realize the glory of redemption, the reach of redemption stooping even low enough to gather you from the miry clay of sin and set you upon your rock, Jesus Christ. Divine revelation. This comes by way of prophecy. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That will be in the positive category. The Lord, and appearing in this angel of the Lord form in this way, he gives a name, Ishmael, which means God hears. Behold, you are pregnant with a son and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name God hears. The prophecy is mixed. There are some negative elements. <clears throat> Verse 12. He, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man. This means strong and versatile. It doesn't mean the, the, you, know, the modern connotations of an insult or anything. A wild donkey, robust, uh, versatile and, and adventurous and so forth, successful, rugged. He shall be a wild donkey of a man in his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all kinsmen. So you see two uh, concepts at play here. One is the testimony will continue by type of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This is kind of a rerun of that concept, a recapitulation, if you will. There are those, that is to say, ultimately spiritually speaking, who are the descendants of Ishmael, as it were. That is, according to the covenant of the flesh. And that would be everyone outside of Christ. But then there are those who are sons according to the Spirit and are according to promise. They are the ones who have been born again according to Jesus Christ, who have been grafted in as sons and daughters of Abraham, and they are the ones who share covenant hope. So in Ishmael's role here, he will represent the covenant according to the flesh in his progeny and so forth, and this is part and parcel to its prophecy. But also recognize within here the redemptive element. God has stooped low. He's revealed himself to Hagar. He has heard her, and her son's name will forever commemorate that truth. She will live with, she will raise an altar, if you will, of God's revelation. And she acknowledges as much. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Hagar did not run and hide and cover herself with fig leaves at the appearance or the, or the uh, threat of God appearing. No, she ran to the Lord. She embraced him. She confessed, you are a God of seeing. The only time that I know of in scripture like this where she actually ascribes, assigns to the Lord himself a name. And she said, truly, here I have seen him and he looks after me. And she, or then forever, therefore, the well was called Or from that time on, you could say, or in the context here, this moment was memorialized by renaming this well by that word I slaughtered before, 'er Be'er lachei roi, something like that. Which means, well of the living one who sees me. Therefore, the well was called, well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Later, Hagar bore Abram a son, of course she returned Hagar did to Abram. Abram called the name of his son, Hagar bore Ishmael, named by the covenant head, a sign of acceptance. She returns underneath the covenant of the promises and the covenant family, so to speak. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Turn to John 4. This is our final reference this morning. Now, these pictures in the Old Testament anticipate a greater fulfillment to come. And these parallels are striking when you begin to see them, and they are by sovereign design. I'm giving you evidence this morning that the Word of God was written by the Holy Spirit Himself, using human agents, of course, but it's divine. God breathed, God breathed a Scripture, and one of the marks of, the God, of God breathed Scripture takes place in the parallel between the at this well that's come to be known, the well of the Living One that sees. And another outcast woman whom Jesus Christ meets at a well. In verse 15, or verse 7, "...there came," John 4, "...a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.'" Samaria, quick history, outcast people. They were returning to the land by Assyrians. They were mixed people, different races, therefore despised by the Jews, an impure race by their ethnic standards. They dwelt north of Israel at the time of the rebuilding. They wanted to help with the temple. Their efforts were rejected, so they tried to build their own temple, which was destroyed by a king of Judah later. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along, and that cultural antinomy went all the way back to these times. They were seen as an outcast, a pagan, a mixed, a Gentile, a people to be despised and rejected, to be cast off. But there would come a day where a representative of the Samaritans would be sitting also at a well. Remember well? Remember the well? In the time of Hagar, she named it Well of the Living One That Sees. <clears throat> well, the living one that truly sees came to a well thousands of years later, and his name was Jesus Christ. This woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have or come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Another name for prophet could be seer. She perceives that this one is the one that sees. She testifies the same when she goes back to her people. So the woman left the water jar in verse 28 and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Hagar uniquely ascribes a name to God, God of seeing. She names the well, or the well becomes known as the well of the living one that sees, at this moment of her meeting the Lord himself, and this divine revelation which communicates to her these promise, the promises of covenant and compels her to return to the covering thereof. Samaritans were also an outcast people. There would come a day of divine visitation. Another woman, another outcast, another one broken by sin, and in this case, immorality and so forth, accompanied her like shame. Marriage circumstances outside the bounds of covenant, just like Hagar. Yet a divine visitation occurred with this woman at the well in John 4, 7-30, and the God of seeing told her, quote in her words, everything she ever did. And she, like Hagar, "'ran to him, and then began to proclaim him. "'She, like Hagar, realized that she was privileged. "'She understood she was undeserving of God's grace. "'Yet the reach of redemption is staggering "'and amazing and powerful. "'It reached so low even to grab, to ransom, to redeem "'one, a woman with a sordid past "'from an outcast people that had been long rejected, "'namely, the Samaritans, fulfilling in Jesus Christ "'the promise to Hagar years and years before.' where she, an outcast, lowly woman, servant, Egyptian, Gentile, rejected, was gathered into the arms of the Almighty by the angel of the Lord himself, telling her to trust in his word and his promises. Saints in the room today, if you have doubted your position, if you have been tempted by counterfeit covenants, if you are awash in a sea of confusion and compromise and sinfulness, because the answers of the world and its counterfeit truths have proved nothing but a failure. I encourage you to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd at the well. Find yourself truly as you you are, lost and lonely, rejected and broken and downcast and sinful and confused and corrupt, and reach out to the Lord and hear His Holy Word and understand and realize in your own experience the reach of redemption. For those of you in the hearing of this message who know exactly what I'm talking about because it happened to you? Do you not have more reason to be encouraged this week to turn and to reinforce your faith by the pure spiritual milk of God's Word? Do you not have more confidence to proclaim as much as the woman at the well did that hope is found in Christ alone? Do not have more joy in anticipating our next gathering where we will exalt our Lord and Savior and our resurrected Messiah upon the praises of His people next week, realizing afresh each time we gather on the Lord's day that His grace stoops so low to save a sinner as wicked as you and as wicked as me. This is the message that goes forth from all the pages of Scripture. And it's illustrated so beautifully in Genesis 16. You and I are proof, just as Hagar and the Samaritan woman at the well were, that God glorifies Himself in saving the outcast. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for the message of Scripture that speaks such encouraging food for our soul. We pray that You would encourage us by its precepts, and You would strengthen us by its promises, that You would equip us by its proclamations to be faithful unto You. Lord, I pray that if there are any unbelievers in the hearing of this proclamation today, that they would bow before you, that they would stop running and hiding and running to false and corrupt and counterfeit covenants, and that they would turn and believe in you, the only way whereby we can be saved, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, we thank you that you were crucified for us, that you fulfilled the ratification vow of Genesis 15, when your own body was pierced, our transgressions so that the covenant might be fulfilled. Let us remember this. Let us turn our attention to it, especially and all the more so in days when it is challenged. And let us be found faithfully proclaiming by the well that is named of the living one that sees that Jesus Christ is the only source of living water. In his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.